HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, host of Full Service Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this show, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Japanese. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, a food writer and a director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from our studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every deli and supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen in Sakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I will try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And I have a very special guest today. Here I have Michael Anthony, who is executive chef and partner of New American restaurant Gramercy Tavern, an executive chef and director of Untitled, and the studio cafe at the new Whitney Museum of American Art. And Mike received the James Beard Award Best Chef New York City in 2012 and its national recognition Outstanding Chef in 2015. And Mike actually started his culinary career in Japan. So today we'll explore how it all started and his love for Japanese cuisine. Hello, Mike. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. So um, you're from uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, at college, you majored in business and French and minored in Japanese. So why French and Japanese? Ah, well, you know, I somehow languages come easy uh, for me. I think it's a, a little bit about uh, how you learn. And for me, uh, retracing my steps to childhood of really just uh, kind of being passionate about uh, learning a new culture, the notion of being desperate to learn, you know, moving to those places is the is the most convincing way to learn the language. But um, it just, they, these are things that, that came easy. Uh, as you grow up, you you learn a little bit about yourself and, and, and how you learn and how you discover the world. And I, I just, I was passionate about languages. I uh, am not always confident about the ideas that I have to share, but I love being able to, mm. to share them to lots of, lots of people. Mm. So it was, um, it was really one of my passions from early on. I, 
I was lucky enough to travel to France as part of my undergraduate degree. And uh, I, I was actually, um, at the end of a year of study there, I was taking a, a bike trip across France. I had um, a backpack and a tent and a mountain bike. And I was, um, I was on my way uh, around the peninsula of Brittany. So starting from the north coast mm. and cutting across the end of Brittany and all the way down through those little rocky uh, villages along the uh, Sud Finistère, it's called, the south mm. coast of France. And uh, it's really cool traveling alone because you are, uh, you know, you're, it's inevitable that you'll meet people mm. <laughs> when, you're, right. when you're out there, you're kind of lonely. And so uh, for five days, I ended up following um, these two Japanese guys. Mm. And we just hit it off. We had a blast out on the road sleeping, you know, in uh, on beaches and discovering France, seeing France also through the eyes of, of other foreigners who looked at it also mm. differently from from their own lens and i was al already curious in the japanese culture i didn't know too much about it uh but n meeting these guys just like made me feel like wow you know what one day i want to check that out oh wow so that encounter with that two cyclists changed like, your whole life maybe it was a little random but you know it, it <laughs> stuck with me and you know, when I decided to move to Japan, like the day after I graduated from college, mm. I I think I might have moved there for all the wrong reasons. I kind of had this like very um, superficial notion of the Japanese culture being, you know, so <laughs> mysterious and romantic. And, and then I moved to Tokyo, which was such a, a dense and oppressive city. Um, and it was a bit of an eye-opening experience. I realized that... Um, you know, it, it wasn't simply an ancient mm. uh, culture filled with, you know, beautiful things that we see from the outside. They were there, mm. um, but it was real life and right. real people. And I noticed that um, I... I had a hard time with just simply adapting to my apartment, which had no furniture. <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't uh, used to being on a crowded subway train and having no one, literally no one, cast their gaze mm. my way. Mm. In Paris, people stare at each other all the time. Right. In, in, in Tokyo, you, you just don't look up. I guess that's the same way in New York, but that's half out of fear. Not just politeness, right. So, yeah, it was, it was um, an eye-opening experience. Mm. Right. And then uh, I heard that you got interested in uh, the local food scene and worked in the bakery and the farm. Yeah, so, you know, sometimes loneliness pushes you in interesting directions. And I was a long way away from friends and family. And oh, but, but you went there and then you, you had a job or you had a... Well, I had lined up a job teaching English like a lot of people do to experience an, uh, you know, a new culture or, you know, to, to, uh, to work. Mm -hmm. And it was a, a well-paying job in a very credible company. I had uh, housing organized and work papers, but the, the workload was quite easy. I mm. enjoyed teaching. My parents are both teachers. And I enjoyed the idea of, uh, I was actually toying with the idea of becoming a teacher. I had no idea what really I would do with my life at that point. I had literally just walked out of, you know, out of uh, my undergraduate degree and kind of in a in a place that I really loved, Bloomington, Indiana, but mm. still Bloomington is a bit of an oasis right. in, the, in the Midwest. <laughs> and so, you know, I was intent on exploring the world and, uh, 
and I had in my head this notion of you know falling in love with with cooking and the idea of becoming a cook. But after having lived in France for a year, I thought I had missed the boat. Mm. You know, I many people had told me, well, look, you know, you've already gone to college. You didn't grow up in a restaurant family. You didn't start cooking at fourteen or fifteen years old. Like. It's too late, buddy. Mm. And I, unfortunately, I believe that. I kind of, <laughs> I accepted it. Mm. And so uh, when I was living in Japan, I started trading uh, English lessons for cooking lessons. And these were oh, wow. home, home cooking lessons. Mm. And uh, it, for me, it was just a way to see behind you know, behind the wall of what it's like to live in mm. Japan. And I became friendly with a group of people that lived in my in my neighborhood, I lived. I didn't really have enough money to live in Tokyo, so I lived uh, just north of the city in Saitama. Mm. I lived in uh, Koshigaya City. Right, it's like an maybe by train. Yeah, oh yeah, it's a long, long commute. Right. Uh, in fact, I was so proud of. Um, as soon as I arrived, I had learned. This was to to date the longest word I knew in Japanese. To dobu tobutsu koen. Mm. <laughs> that's and the name of a that's zoo. That's the zoo. <laughs> And the only way I knew that is because it was the last stop on my train. Because once you leave the you know the outer ring of Tokyo, um, the words are no longer written in Romanized characters. So I had to. For, at first, I just memorized the number of stops, so I got off at the right place. But yeah, that was I was very proud of that. So anyway, I I started exploring, and I um, I, I met a guy who owned a bakery in my little town, and I um, went in and asked him if I could start working early in the morning if he'd show me a few things. And um, you know, in the back of my mind, I had this idea that you know what. Maybe I could make a go of this. Maybe, you know, I'm here. I love Japan. Mm. I'd like to go to Tsuji Cooking School in Osaka. Right. I thought That's that like was a like, CIA with Japanese. Yeah, exactly. Crazy. Beautiful cooking school and so organized. And they've produced so many beautiful books and documents. And the owner is such an inspired character. Um, so I said, okay, well, I'm going to need some professional experience. And I had worked a little bit in restaurants in high school, college, but never with the intent of mm. doing that for a living. So... I would get up, you know, at 3.30 in the morning and go in and learn how to make funny things like ampang. <laughs> ampang is uh, the, the red bean stuffed bread. And ka- kari pang. Yeah, the kari stuffed bread. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, for a Westerner, they were really curious <laughs> breakfast items, but right. they were also really cool. And mm. I, I, I fell in love with them. I really love those those things. And so I, it was more of a just kind of a learning how to be busy than mm. learning the fine craft of, of baking. Um, but nonetheless, that's part of working in a restaurant. You have to learn the rules. You have to learn the movement. Mm. You have to learn the dedication. And, you know, I was, I was more than eager to get up early in the morning like that and work for a few hours, oh, then wow. rush home, mm-hmm. take a shower, and go do my job. Wow. So little by little... Uh, the idea of you know pursuing cooking um, stuck, and mm. so re- because it's a cultural kind of learning as well, not just food. Mm. Yeah, you you know you have to learn the language, you have to learn the jargon, mm. and you have to learn the timing. Right. And there was something about that that made me feel very connected to, you know, I was suffering from feeling disconnected from you know, for being a foreigner in Japan. And mm. that job made me feel like all of a sudden I have this, you know, this insider's look. Mm. And the, the gentleman who I worked for was very kind. 
Um, as you can imagine, he worked so hard that he was always tired. His patience was a little short. So it wasn't really like he was holding my hand. He was kind of <laughs> nipping at my heels. And, and I would really, I, I love that pressure of like, hey, like this guy needs me to, to do this right and mm. get it done or else I'm messing up his business. Mm. And it was just a little mom and pop shop. They lived above. Right. They invited me into their home and I started to see how they, how they lived. Uh, they were very kind. And, mm. um, and then, so I, I, I took the initiative to reach out in mm. a letter to, um, the culinary critic of the Herald, International Herald Tribune mm. in Tokyo, the English okay. newspaper. And his name is, uh, Clint Hall. If he's listening out there, Clint, I just want to give you a big thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but I reached out to Clint, not having ever met him. Oh, really? And I didn't know him at all. I just read his column in the paper and mm. thought it was cool. And I, I enjoyed his point of view. And he was very enthusiastic about restaurants. I love when food writers um, share a sense of love for the restaurant business. They, they share insight and an infatuation with learning more and, and giving that to their readers rather than the notion of walking in and seeing how they can, ah, mm. I gotcha. Pick you know pick a restaurant apart. Mm-hmm. Um, so so Clint was one of these guys that just shared a, a love of restaurants. And when I explained my my master plan, he didn't laugh. He didn't blow me off. He said, you know that's that's cool. Let me introduce you to someone who might be able to help. Mm. And that's okay. That's why. So I'm that like. master plan was to work <laughs> for a female chef, Suzuo Shima. Uh, it was a small French bistro called the Bistro Shima in Roppongi, Tokyo. So, so you you contacted her. Yeah, well, fortunately, Clint reached out and made the first contact because otherwise, I think she probably would have, like, I don't know, I'm not sure she would have answered the phone or answered a letter. <laughs> she she was tough. Um, Shima Sensei was. Um, an unbelievable story. I mean, she mm-hmm. opened her, she had worked in France for three and a half years during the mid seventies, you mm-hmm. know, way before oh, wow. that wave of Japanese she, chefs um, made their yeah, way there. Amazing. Uh, she had worked in a famous three Michelin star restaurant mm-hmm. called Le Camellia, mm-hmm. which is barely not, it's not really even recognized in the current lexicon of mm-hmm. famous restaurants that chefs, you know, throw around. Right. Obviously it's no longer there. And the chef owner has since passed away. Mm-hmm. That's um, the John de la Ven. Yeah. And then like a three star Michelin in Paris. He was the kind of big daddy of uh, that former generation of chefs. Very, mm-hmm. uh, very hard on his employees. I'm sure on himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was, it, it was an infamous restaurant. Wow. So, yeah, at that time, I can't believe it, that woman, strong woman. So she had a, a small restaurant and it was 18 seats only. And uh, what, what kind of uh, restaurant it was a very serious place? Well, it was, a, it was a charming place. In a way, she was translating kind of the culmination of her life, having fallen in love with uh, France and being a, a cook. Mm-hmm. She, um, you know, having lived there and done something that very few people... Uh, had accomplished, she really mm. was translating that through uh, basically, um, you know, 20 seat restaurant. And it's ironic that, you know, now we fast forward all these years and we look at like all of these chefs um, in France in particular, but really all over the world, mm. opening restaurants that are minuscule in size and, and giving that sense of, um, I'm, I'm, I'm translating a, my personal point of view mm. of the world 
in this meal. And so that's what she did. She was so far ahead of her time. And it was, you know, it was Tokyo as well, where small Mm. restaurants are not necessarily out of place. Right. Um, The majority, like uh, like 20 seats, tempura place, and 13 (laughs) seats at Tonkatsu place, that kind of mindset. Right, yeah. And this was, ironically, mm. um, it was was about, I don't know, 30 steps away from Roppongi Crossing, Mm. the same distance from what is now Roppongi Hills. Oh, wow. Or, sorry, Roppongi Midtown. Okay, so that's like a huge business and restaurant shop complex. Where we actually have a restaurant, Union Square Tokyo. Wow. It's like a seven iron away from that Mm. original place when when I... as I remember it, it was a dark and lonely mm. walk <laughs> from the subway all the way over there. But mm. you know, listen, there's there's not a day that goes that goes by that I don't either make reference to something I learned in my first year and a half of working mm. for her, mm. or that I don't you know think about in you know something related to that very first year. Mm. She taught me to you know some basics like choose the right tool for the right job. Mm. Um, always work in a clean and organized manner. Mm. Uh, always be thinking three steps ahead. And mm. those those are the keys, you know, for any cook to succeed in almost any kitchen. Mm. Um, so so I really it, it was a, a, a difficult apprenticeship, and I can talk about it lovingly now. I didn't know I would survive the experience then. <laughs> <laughs> but you did. Yeah. Right. So, but eventually, um, she suggested that you go to France and to formally study French cuisine. Well, when a year and a half was up, she said, okay, that's it. I've taught you everything I know. It's time for you to move on. Mm. And I was like, I was kind of hurt. I was like, Wait, are you kicking me out? <laughs> and she's like, no, that's it. I mean, you've done everything that you can here. It's time for you to learn more. Mm. And I said, okay, great. Wow, th- I did it. And she says, you're going to Paris. And I was like, Wait. That's not the plan. <laughs> and she says, yes, it is. You're going to Paris. You're, f- you're from the West. If you love Japan so much, you can come back. Mm. And that, you know what? I mean, you don't mess around with Shima. I, I followed her <laughs> orders. <laughs> and uh, so I, I wrote and I applied for school at, um, mm. you know, in Paris. Right. And then that was 1992. And, and you had a lot of great restaurants uh, you worked at. And uh, that's the Camellia, the Camellia as well? Well, that restaurant had closed by then, but Monsieur okay. de la Vene was in the kind of last years of his career. And mm. uh, Shima had come and right off the bat in the fall, she, as soon as I got uh, set up in school, she invited me to lunch at his restaurant um, uh, in La Rue Saint-Dominique. Mm-hmm. And it was a small place. And she, she told, you know... Monsieur de la Vene that I would be a serious student. I wouldn't mess around. And, you know, would it be okay if I came in to learn the ropes? And Mm. he actually allowed me to come into the kitchen three days a week after Ah. cooking school. So I would pack up my stuff and hightail it across town and go in and and just kind of try to stay out of the way. I noticed that the sous chef was wearing soccer shin pads. And I was like, that's curious. (laughs) Why is he wearing? Maybe they played soccer this afternoon. Well... That is not exactly why he was wearing shit. Wow. <laughs> so it was, wow. it was a rough place, and it was a, you can believe it was an eye-opening experience for me. Wow. It's shocking. Um, okay. And uh, so that's when you really learned French uh, techniques and uh, cuisine. But um, 
you know, that, that was a time, like you said earlier, there was a time many Japanese cooks started to go to France and train. So did you work with them in the kitchen? I met a lot of Japanese cooks. And, you know, at that time, I was so impressed. First of all, I was deeply in love with the idea of living in Japan. And I had, you know, the only notion that I had was that I would, you know, get some great training and then go back to Japan. I, I, I love it there. And and then, you know, in the early 90s was the full-on wave of Japanese chefs mm. uh, who, had, who were committed to coming to mostly France but at, that, at that point. And, and they weren't just there for a couple of months. They would come and stay for a few years. Mm. Um, many of them shared small apartments. On Sundays when the restaurant was closed, we would all have a wine class. And it was led by mm. a Japanese guy who was the sommelier at L'Arpège. Wow. And he, he would put posters all over the wall. Everyone would bring a bottle based on the theme of the class he was teaching. And he would, you know, he would talk for hours. Wow. And, and it was just, it was an amazing community. And because I was getting a little bit of a notion of the language and at work there, out of, when I was working in a restaurant called Jacques Kenya, there were 12 cooks altogether. Six were Japanese. No. And the head pastry chef was Japanese. Uh, and, and most of them didn't speak great French. Uh, nor did the head chef speak very good uh, Japanese or English. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, in a way, I think it saved my life several times. I was in over my head, for mm -hmm. sure. And I was, you know, I was struggling to survive every day. It was a two Michelin star restaurant. It was a very serious place. And I, I was definitely, you know, it, the fact that the chef had said, get over here, Mike, tell them, you know, and he meant tell the Japanese guys mm. this, this, and this. And I was like, okay, no problem. <laughs> I think that's the only reason why I got to stick around for, oh, for a wow. little while. But you really pressed the right button, like, you know, studied Japanese and met Shima, and then you were there. Just like... You know, I was lucky. I was thinking about that. Like, if only we could um, establish those moments in life where you make those big decisions that end up, you know, becoming big, big curves in the road for you. Mm. I, I'd like to think that, you know, we as people get to you know have the ability to do that at any point in our lives mm. um, but yeah that was that was one of those moments that those decisions really kind of determined the course that right. my life would take and um, it, the only thing I can say is along the way I met a lot of people that helped me and you know when I tried to think of how I could ever repay them the only thing that comes to mind is do it for someone else. Mm. And I've always wondered, you know, why the restaurant industry tends to create more roadblocks than it does avenues. And, I've, you know, I, I hope that, you know, through through working that I could do something about that. Mm, okay. And uh, so then you moved back to the U.S. and uh, worked at uh, Line Cook at Daniel, which, of course, has been one of the best French restaurants in the U.S. And, and then worked as a sous chef at uh, New American Restaurant March. So was it... Um, it's shocking to work in an American kitchen environment versus more structured or rigid, if you will. Oh, yeah. It was a big change for me. And I realized that, um, you know, when I came to New York, I thought, well, that'll be my story is here's this, you know, kid who has experience working in French and Japanese kitchens. Um, I, you know, as soon as I got to New York, I started to admire David Boulay's style of cooking and I was like wow okay there you know this is really this there's a lot of room to work in this in this style um and uh when I left the restaurant Danielle uh I, I took my first sous chef job at the restaurant March mm. and I realized that um 
of quickly I realized that it was for all the wrong reasons. Mm. Not that March wasn't a great place, but Chef Wayne Nish was, uh, you know, has has Japanese heritage. He's like a quarter Japanese. He's half Japanese, right. and and so when I met Wayne, I thought the idea would be okay. This is a way to cultivate mm. a lot of the Japanese uh, background that I have in my cooking, and you know, thought it would be, you know he he had a very present voice in. Um, kind of the evolution of American cooking, contemporary American cooking, mm. a great, um, just an intuitive sense of how to uh, listen to his own voice and combine ingredients mm. uh, in new and exciting ways. He really was a very inspirational chef. And uh, but it, he I realized that he wasn't really into every time I would bring up references of Japanese cooking or French cooking. He was like, that's that's beside the point. Mm. And Wayne's take on cooking was really his iconoclastic approach to life. It was Mm. about, you know, really expressing something very personal about, you know, about being here in New York and about the way he grew up in a multicultural family. It was really an individualistic you know, expression, which really wasn't all that different from the, the you know, the the creativity that I experienced at, at mm. Shima's place. Mm. I just didn't know what I was getting into. Ultimately, I, I you know, worked there for four years mm. and, and feel completely indebted to all the, you know, everything that I learned, all the things that I got to do while I was working mm. there. But, that's, uh, that's, but it was a surprise. Right. You know, life, but life you know, you know that was, that's the way how you think of, you know, the new American cuisine. Right. Yeah. So you have to be really like, you don't have a form or any models that to follow. And then you have to be strong and come up with your own style. That's well, there's that, you know, the idea of style and kind of personal expression. And then also Wayne taught me this notion of like, it's not really rocket science, but it's like if you want to motivate people, they have to want to follow you. Mm-hmm. And you can't do that through, you know, ri- rigid uh um, and uh, derogatory ways. Mm. You have to talk to people in a way that that makes them feel valued and mm. uh, and and honored. And in a you know in a way, I kind of learned that in the kitchen you can actually um, and have to really appeal to people mm. on a personal level if you ever want to be able to share ideas and work together as a team. Mm. Uh, it was a it was it seems quite simple, but you know for a cook who had never seen. Uh, kind of laid back kitchen like that. Right. It was it was brand new and it was eye opening and mm. I struggled at right. first. Okay, and then after you worked at March, you returned to Paris to work at uh, Alain Passard at La Page and Pascal Balbo at La Chance. Uh, that they were like forward minded, innovative French kitchens. So yeah, so I, I was lucky enough that when I was working at Danielle, I met Pascal who came to cook in New York and we hit it off and you know my time spent in their kitchens were just visiting I was just an outsider coming to take a look uh, but you know Pascal is just really one of the most energetic mm-hmm. positive um, upbeat chefs I had ever met and you know he was very generous with his time and showed me showed me around and uh, both when he was in charge of the mm-hmm. kitchen at L'Arpège and then later at his own restaurant mm-hmm. uh, restaurants and so, you know, I've always been a fan of his, both uh, his style, but more importantly, his, uh, the spirit he brings to the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Just this, this um, it's an, um, he has a uh, unquenchable thirst for discovering products and tinkering with new ways to handle them. He naturally, because he's, he's so good at what he does, he figures out the kind of most uh, direct way or the best way or the most simplistic mm. way to handle them so as to really 
uh, allow them to to show off. Mm. And that's his style. It's it's it has amazed the world. I don't. I mean, I couldn't say anything more. Everyone already knows how mm. spectacular he is. But it was a great eye opening experience to see. Um, French food translated again through the eyes of, you know, he's a wanderer. He's a guy that mm. translates flavors and ideas from around the world. Right. And I think that's, you know, one of the amazing um, mm. parts of, you know, that's led to his success. Right. Well, I've been to both restaurants. I, I have a sense of still something similar to what you cook at uh, your restaurants. Too, so. Well, that is beyond flattering. And, you know, I've been a fan of his, you know, for forever. Right. Okay, so we'll take a quick break here, and uh, when we come back, we'll talk about Mike's intense culinary training in Kyoto. So please stay with us. song is entitled Relax. It's just the end of the world by Taxstar. You're listening to Japan Eats. We'll be right back. You're listening to Japan Needs, broadcasting live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, and my guest today is Michael Anthony, who is executive chef, partner of Gramercy Tavern, and executive chef and director of Untitled and Studio Cafe at Whitney Museum of American Art. And Mike received the James Beard Award, Best Chef New York City, in 2012, and its national recognition, Outstanding Chef, in 2015. So um, you came back to New York and joined Dunbarba at Blue Hill Stone Barns in Hudson Valley as executive chef in 2002. So do you think the experience at Blue Hill and Stone Barns influenced your style of cooking now? Well, it, it certainly was, uh, you know, a, a, a fairy tale. And, uh, you know, the natural beauty of that place, uh, sure, has, has left a mm-hmm. long-lasting uh, Image and many, many memories, yes. Right. Okay. And uh, so four years after you worked at Wilson uh, Barnes, you became the executive chef at Gramsci Tavern. So how did it happen? <laughs> it, it was in a very roundabout way. I mean, long story short, I had set out to open my own restaurant and I had a business plan and uh, wanted to just cross all the T's and dot the I's and I took it to to Danny Meyer who who else I mean who's mm. who would be better to, <laughs> you to just look over it well mm. I had met Danny along the way and um, you know had always admired his restaurants mm. <clears throat> and uh, he was kind enough to 
to help me and to look things over and give me lots of advice about, you know, about the plan that I had. And one thing led to another and the conversation took a right hand turn. And, you know, it's seemed hardly possible that, you know, that would ever in my lifetime, you know, be a possibility. I hadn't really grown up dreaming about that. But, Mm. you know, when when asked, um, I, you know, I thought carefully about the idea of coming on at Gramercy and uh, it it was ultimately an easy decision. It was, you know, both the easiest and the hardest job that I've ever mm. stepped into. Yeah. Um, but it has been the most supportive and uh, loving group of people and um, and the most fertile soil to grow in. So here we are 10 years later, and I am as deeply in love with the idea as I was, you mm. know, the moment he asked. Right. Okay. And under your leadership, Gramercy Tavern has earned a three-star New York Times review in 2007 and James Beard Award for Outstanding Restaurant in 2008. So how do you describe your style of cooking after you know, absorbing so many great elements of French, New American, and Japanese cuisine? Well, you know, first of all, I should say that you know, those awards are, are all amazing uh, thing to be a part of. It, you know, it's definitely work that was on the backs of so many people that came before me. That restaurant has a family tree unlike no other. And it's interesting when you mm. meet people around town you know, who at one point either work there now or at one point in their career work there. Mm. They, they all feel so deeply connected. Um, and the people who worked there years ago feel as deep, if not, you know, deeper, more, more deeply connected as the, mm. as the people currently there. Uh, so it's an amazing, it's an amazing group of people to work with. Uh, you know, the, <clears throat> the restaurant itself is an amazing platform to talk about contemporary American cooking because it was really conceived as the love child mm. uh, of um, Union Square Cafe and the, the warmth and, and the approachability of that restaurant, uh, mar- married with uh, the excellence of Taivon. Uh, mm. from Paris. Those were the kind of guiding lights behind the creation of that, mm. that restaurant. Um, but when I got there, I, I tried to just, you know, um, in the spirit of the way I see food and, and remember, the, you know, my favorite meals from around, uh, from wherever I travel, I tried to uh, simply think about how we could create a style of food that would um, appeal to people mm. and really underline the the moment that you're eating that meal and uh, amplify the that particular place. So the you know, and I would go to uh, places in um, Japan and in France, and I would meet people that were so proud of things that came from their you know their region and cooked them in a particular way and took their time to tell me about um, what's what was different about that than, mm. than any other place. You know, it it. it appealed to me and I uh, try to do the same through you know through the platform of of Gramercy Tavern the Mm. idea that um, cooking with ingredients that are uh, grown close to to us to home um, thinking carefully about the changing season so that we're more aware of the world around us and and in fact this is a little bit of a stretch but really more in contact with the natural world mm. and i for me those are the that was the connector in uh and what has appealed to to me as a chef because now more than ever it's fascinating in the time that i've done this for a living you know it went from being a slightly marginal uh profession to uh, being a, a job in which people uh, frequently go to, mm. uh, to to look for information. Chefs right. are asked to be uh, the voice of so many different causes, uh, whether it be in environmental, uh, health, 
um, social justice, mm. uh, and, and so many more that are based on kind of that are connected to the restaurant world. Right. Um, we have both this um, opportunity and responsibility of kind of uh, paying attention mm. and being aware. Right. It's really a treat because, in some ways, it's almost like being a journalist where. We are um, we're connected to so many different aspects of that, that impact aspects of life that impact the mm. the community that um, we are by far uh, you know far from the experts in, in those fields but um, but enthusiastic mm. uh, contributors and I think right. that if at Gramercy Tavern what we really try to do is just play an active role in uh, thoughtfully choosing the food that we serve, uh, continuing to teach people something about our craft, and then doing it in a way that, you know, makes people understand implicitly that when they're on that team, they are needed. Mm -hmm. Um, That their their performance, their role, their, you know, their lives matter in in the process of that team performing really well. Mm. Uh, So anyway, I, I think we have a... We have a great place. It's a great place to work, and it's. Uh, I'm really proud of the style of uh, contemporary American food that we serve there. Not overly manipulated, mm. focused on local ingredients, always trying to find a little something to surprise our guests. Mm, okay. Well, it sounds like uh, food at Gramercy Tavern is uh, part of the nature, in a way. Well, it's definitely um, with that, that thought in mind of look outside and see how you know the day feels that should impact the way the mm. the, the meal is cooked and mm. and served okay and i think your cooking philosophy is uh, summarized in your beautiful cookbook uh v is for vegetables so which came out in october last year and what is the theme of the book well you know i i really wanted to encourage people uh at home to feel a sense of uh, empowerment to, to cook more often at home. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of vegetables comes out of the way I like to eat. Um, vegetables are the, one of the easiest ways uh, to open the dialogue about eating foods from here. Mm-hmm. Their color, shape, size, texture. You know, it's, it's eye-catching. Mm-hmm. It's, um, we have established a great uh, distribution system. Many people are, you know, belong to either mm-hmm. shop at the green market or belong to a, a CSA or have, you know, some excitement about visiting farms. Uh, frequently, I would see, you know, on post Facebook posts, people would like triumphantly hold something up out of their CSA basket <laughs> and say like, what is this? <laughs> and what do I do with it? Mm. And that that is, you know, a common occurrence. I'm not, you know, I'm not making fun of anyone. But um, the book is mm. is really uh, all about helping folks like that say, one, now I know what this is because I, I can name it. We did. Uh, we took Maura McAvoy, the photographer of the book, took beautiful pictures mm. of the whole plants, leaves, stems, roots, intact. Right. So you could really see what it looks like when it, you know, um, when it first is, is harvested. Mm. Uh, and then uh, we shot the book in natural light while I was cooking it and plating it. Uh, people could really get a sense of, ah, not only am I following a recipe that works, but here's some guidance of mm. figuring out like, okay, now I understand what he's talking about. He, he 
he peeled it like this and cut it like that mm. and then put it in a pan. You know, right. so there's some when you shoot the process photos, there's some obvious steps that help people. Uh, it's not really holding their hands because I want for folks to you know learn how to cook intuitively, but it's pointing them in the right direction and mm-hmm. saying, "Look, you don't need a specialist for this. Right. You, you can do this." Yep, and I have the book, and it's so easy, and they feel like, "Oh, I can do this." Cool. So, all right, and then um, oh, by the way, you have a couple of different Japanese um, vegetables and recipes. So, well, I, the, the book was all about you know um, my first book was the Gramercy Tavern Cookbook which uh, was about this, the origin and the creation, the evolution of that restaurant, and all the mm-hmm. people who have made it come to be such a special place. Vias for Vegetables is about my, my personal take on, mm. on food and cooked from home. So naturally, a lot of Japanese techniques and ingredients found their way into that book because that's mm-hmm. how I like to eat. Right. Um, and so while... I guess it may come across, you know, to sometimes my mom asks me, what are these ingredients and preparations <laughs> like dashi? And, and she'll ask, what, what do I do with a daikon? And I, now I can just say, turn to page 50. <laughs> but the, the idea may come across to some uh, Americans who aren't familiar with those words as being a little exotic. But these days, I think that they're, they're becoming quite well known uh, for people who love food across this country. And now mm. we've seen now more than ever that there is a, a connection, a cultural connection between the two countries through food that, mm. you know, thanks to you and a lot of folks who have opened these doors, um, you know, we're, we're really starting to run with it. I think that, you know, it, it wouldn't be a stretch to say that, you know, Japanese food is, is if not the most uh, heavy, you know, heavy influence on contemporary cooking. It's certainly one one of the most important influences on contemporary American cooking. Mm. And that may not be through an overuse of technique or ingredients, but it's kind of in the spirit of things that the natural approach, the kind of the the normal and natural connection to the seasons around us, the idea of trying to refine dishes so that they're in a light, the lightest form possible while still mm. conveying flavor. Yeah. I should write down what you said, and I said, claim it. <laughs> and, well, the speaking of, uh, so in 2008, I got a very lucky job to find uh, two talented American chefs and uh, accompany them to Kyoto, uh, where they would train with the best Kaisek chefs for 10 days. And then you and David Chang of Momofuku and I went to Kyoto and spent time together. So, do you want to talk about it? Oh, well, for, let me just say thank you to begin with, because that was an extraordinary trip. You know, we were talking about it at the time, and it's still, you know, very true that had we lived and worked in Japan for 20 years, I don't think we would have had access like that to so many different restaurants, so many different producers and farms and, uh, you know, cultural institutions. We In seven days, we took in a lot. Right, yeah. Actually, uh, looking at the schedule, and we visited uh, Kyoto Fish Market, uh, Nishiki Food Market, Knife Craftsman, Sake Brewery, uh, Kyoto Vegetable, that's like a national, we recognize 41 Kyoto, dish, uh, Kyoto vegetables, and Tofu Factory, Soba Factory, Kombu Factory, and we did tea, tea ceremony, and more. <laughs> and, we, and we worked in restaurants. Right. I mean, and we definitely misbehaved <laughs> by staying out way too late and drinking too much. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, I was thinking you mentioned uh, the the farm that we went to visit. Remember that? It was along the riverbed, and mm. we got to pull up those um, akakombu, akakabu, akakabu, yeah. the red mm-hmm. turnips. And now we, we see those growing oh, in, wow. the, um, 
here in New York. Wow. Uh, and but I remember the flavor of those things. It was such a great experience, and mm. the notion of kyoyasai mm. vegetables that are um, specific to the Western, you know, Kansai region of Japan. Mm. That over years and years of um, I guess scrutiny between farmers and chefs, probably in the imperial court, but mm. afterwards as well, um, you know, gave them the kind of dignity and classification of being recognized as special to that place. Mm. Wouldn't it be amazing if, you know, we were able to, in time, work with plant breeders and farmers to establish a group of uh, vegetables that were recognized and known mm. from, you know, from this area? Right. Yeah, actually, I tried to uh, plant some, and I think I uh, sent the seeds to my uh, friends in Arizona, and then they're able to grow some of them. So, well, I don't know <laughs> if you remember. So there was uh, we went to visit the, um, you know, the farm up in the in the mountains that um, it was a yuzu farm, mm. uh, but there was a sancho uh, plant, right? And the, and I was talking about it because I was fascinated with the sancho mm -hmm. uh, peppercorns, right? And um, they kind of grow in tandem, sort of thing, one near the other. And and the farmer pulled it up, roots and all, and said, "Yeah, take it, take it, plant it." <laughs> and I was like, "That's such a great idea." And I wrapped it lovingly in a towel and. And then I was like, that's not a good idea. I'm never going to get back <laughs> in the country like this. So I gave it to Shima, of all people, oh, when I was right. passing through uh, Tokyo, and she planted it. Okay. Right. Maybe next time. You can yeah, maybe, she, maybe it's growing strong. <laughs> right. Okay. So what do you think you learned from uh, the Kyoto experience? Well, you know, first of all, it was the sense of generosity that the academy has for teaching um, about you know their heritage and mm. uh, and their culture and their cooking so on top of their already busy schedules of running their restaurants and you know these are the top chefs in japan they they were eager and open to share you know their restaurants their lives their producers everything with us and so that sense of when someone comes knocking on the door and, and expresses interest in what you're doing you know it it really um it, it's really important to stop what you're doing and mm and pay attention to, to give them something, mm. uh, even if it's just a glimpse at, at what's going on. So that was that sense of that, the sense of Japanese hospitality. And we also learned that it was quite curious when you had all these big chef guys in the teeny tiny ancient, um, tea house to study the tea ceremony mm -hmm. and, you know, no one could fit into the slippers and we were all kind of like, hmm, interesting way to spend <laughs> an afternoon. Um, Little did we know that uh, Takahashi-san was serving mm -hmm. the chef, Takahashi. lunch from mm -hmm. Kyote Restaurant. Mm. 15th generation chef right. served us, you know, the traditional tea ceremony. And, and like many chefs, is uh, he regularly practices the tea ceremony, mm. which I guess can come across as curious for a Westerner. But we, we realized and learned that the heart of Japanese uh, mm. hospitality starts in that ceremony and in that, you know, the gestures right. um, that are involved in the ceremony. So it was an eye-opening experience. And, and you know, we were introduced to so many great flavors. You know, the all of a sudden now, you know, you hear it's, it's common for chefs to talk about, mm. you know, uh, koji, uh, kuzu. These are, you know... Uh, items that a few years ago were kind of just arriving in right. um, you know American cooking and international cooking now they have arrived and uh, so this idea of building flavor 
using some of the kind of the building blocks of、mm. Japanese cooking、mm. is really, really interesting.、Mm. So, how do you apply those,、uh, your takeaways to your own cooking at the Gramercy Tavern or Untitled? Well, you know, it's like I said that I think that more than the techniques and ingredients themselves, it's the, the spirit of things. of here's, here's the direction that this dish should take. And it kind of, I would like to think that it appeals to especially Japanese diners because it's,、um, you know, because of the way it's made, the, the freshness, the, the cleanness, the lightness, the refined quality, the closeness to nature, the, you know, even the way in which the ingredients fall. There's a little less、um, symbolic plating in、mm. the way we cook.、Um, not to mention that being an American chef, I find is, is kind of liberating. So while kaiseki cooking is true seasonal、mm. tasting menus, but it follows a very, very organized um, and, uh, and in, in most cases, an unchanging format.、Right. Although chefs will <laughs> add their own special touch,、mm. you know, for us it was even hard to recognize those special touches. They were so discreet.、Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas for us, seasonal cooking tends to be a new expression, almost con- a continual new expression of seasonality through the materials we use.、Mm. So, in some ways, it's a guiding light. light. In other ways, I think、um, what comes naturally to American chefs is this sense of, of freedom、mm. and ability to,、right. you know, to explore and break rules in some cases when they make sense、mm. and to, you know, to, to kind of. Follow this ever changing、right. uh, renewal of kind of innovative、mm. cooking. I hope、uh, Kaiseki chefs that you worked with、um, are going to come back, come to New York and then taste your dishes. Well, they may take something away from your dishes.、Too. There are no, no better chefs in the world and they, they're masterful at what they do. And it's hard for us as Westerners to understand the concentration that it takes to、uh, continue to try to perfect. Uh, one single style of cooking.、Mm. And that, that's a, it's, it's something that we have a hard time with. Our, our cooks get a little eager to move on to another station you know, within months, and it's our job to continue to throw new challenges their way.、Mm. But you know, if you think about that sense of、um, you know, satisfaction in a job well done that、mm. is part of、uh, really life in Japan, but especially in cooking. Um, so it reminds me almost like a martial arts. Yeah, there's, well, there's a real source of inspiration there. And,、mm-hmm. you know, while we pursue this idea of, you know, kind of the freedom in our cooking, it's important as cooks that we also、uh, apply discipline.、Mm-hmm. So, in both cases, I think, you know, that、uh, Japan gives us a great source of inspiration for moving things forward.、Mm-hmm. Okay. Well,、uh, thank you for joining us today, Mike. And、uh, please come back. It was so great being here today. Okay, so、uh, listeners, if you'd like to know more about Mike's restaurants, please visit thegramacytavern.com and untitled at whitney.com. And if you have any questions or comments about the show, please contact us at heritageradionetwork.org. And by the way, we recently launched a beautiful new website, so please visit our page. And today's show was made possible by、uh, Corin, and our engineer is Liz Smith. And this is our last show with, my, with me at Heritage. And we'll miss、uh, Liz so much, but good luck on your new job, Liz. And Japanese is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, and the Stitcher podcast. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week.
this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>